appreciated hearing Ari read the scripture earlier this morning because there's just something about hearing a child read the Christmas story, isn't there? I guess that's why I like uh, the Charlie Brown special where Linus quotes from Luke chapter 2 and uh, reads the real heart and meaning of Christmas. But sometimes kids get it wrong. Uh, there was a brother and sister during one Christmas service and they were singing Silent Night and they came to the last line that says, Sleep in heavenly peace. And the boys sang, Sleep in heavenly beans. B-E-A-N-S, beans. And his sister said, no, that's not right. It's peas, P-E-A-S. <laughs> or, or the time the, the one boy said to his dad, Dad, I'm just confused about the Christmas story. Um, I, I know Jesus was born of a virgin, but which one? He said, son, there was only one. He said, no, there's the Virgin Mary, and there's the King James Version. <laughs> which one? <laughs> But I love the heart of a child that says this story is true. The heart of a child is the heart that believes what their parents tell them. The heart that embraces the truth and eliminates the doubt. And that's the miracle of the Christmas story, that people simply believed God when he said he was going to do some miraculous things. The series that we're doing is called The Miracles of Christmas. And last week we looked at the miracle of God becoming man. And now this week we want to press on a little bit further in the miracle section of Christmas, dealing with the wonderful story of Luke chapter 1. So if you have your Bibles, let me encourage you to turn to Luke chapter 1. And this is a story that is true. Not all stories are myths or fabrications. This is actual history, events that took place in real time and space. And we read, as any good story, a little bit of the background, a little bit of the backstory before we get into the plot itself. So in Luke chapter 1, verse 26, we read the background of what's about to happen. It says, in the sixth month, and we learn later on in the text that that is the sixth month of the pregnancy of Elizabeth, and that took place, the whole story, in the early part of Luke chapter 1. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. So God is going to do something miraculous and something unusual. He's going to speak to man from an angel. There are angelic visitations throughout Scripture, but God has chosen primarily to speak to people through people. And so this is unusual, but it is an unusual setting. And God sends the same one who went to Zechariah in Luke chapter 1, Gabriel. By the way, Gabriel gets to do a lot of the good stuff. It seems like, you know, Michael the archangel is the one fighting all the time. Gabriel, he, he's the one who gets to go tell the good news to everyone. And so here he is coming to Mary with an amazing message. And the Bible tells us God sent Gabriel to Nazareth, 
I, I found a picture online of Nazareth. This is uh, 1905. And the reason why this picture, I think, is so good is because it gives us a sense that this was a very humble, small town. It's a neat picture because you can see Mount Tabor in the background. And if you were go, to go over the hill on the right, you would go down into the Valley of Jezreel, where the Battle of Armageddon will be fought one day. And little Nazareth is perched on some hills just above that valley. It was a small, humble town. Remember what the Scripture says? Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Hey, this place had a bad reputation. They defied Rome. They rebelled against Roman rule, and that caused a lot of issues. In fact, in this next picture, uh, this was taken from the movie The Nativity Story, 2006. I don't know if you've seen it. I think it's a great story to notice the, the history uh, the, the sets that they've designed for Nazareth and Jerusalem and even the journey of Mary and Joseph are amazing. There's some other things in the movie I, I don't like, but I love to look at the history uh, and the setting. And, and the way they've done Nazareth here, I think, is so spot on. And the Romans would have come to this little place because it was a place of sedition, because it was a place of rebellion. And even though it maybe only had 250 inhabitants... Rome knew where Nazareth was, and it had this lousy reputation. 250 people probably lived in town. That means everyone knows your business. That's good, and that's bad. <laughs> good when you need support, that everyone is a close-knit community. Bad when you want to get away and be by yourself. In fact, many of the people in that town were related to one another, which made it even more interesting. But it was a town with a bad reputation. It's usually at this point that I liken this town to some American town that has a bad reputation. But every time I've done that, someone in the audience comes to me and says, that's my hometown you just talked about. <laughs> so I don't do that anymore. I don't mention places like Cleveland and other places like that <laughs> with bad reputations. But Nazareth was like that. And this is where the angel goes. God often does some of his most amazing work in obscure places. The Bible tells us that in that town was a young man named Joseph. And we think of Joseph as a carpenter, and he might have been a carpenter. If we could jump over, I know that I skipped one slide, the village slide, let's forget that. Let's go to Joseph. There he is. Um, I, I like this character, Joseph. I thought he played a great Joseph in the movie. He might have possibly been a stonemason because the Greek word simply means craftsman, and there's not much wood around Nazareth. It's an arid place. But whether he's a carpenter or whether he's a stonemason, he's a craftsman who works hard at his occupation. He's reputable, diligent, and the Bible calls him righteous. So he's a godly young man and a perfect catch for some young gal in this city, and Mary is the one. The Bible tells us he is pledged to be married to a woman named Mary. Here's a picture of uh, Mary as a normal teenage girl, uh, probably enjoying the activities of family and community. I say normal and young because she's probably 16 years old. Could have been 
Could have been as young as 13, but that freaks us out a little bit. Could have been 18. I, I'm pretty convinced she's in those teenage years because life expectancy was short. And, and it was normal and necessary to start families early. And Mary's parents and Joseph's parents had gotten together and agreed on this union, and they were pledged to be married. Keisha Castle Hughes, the actress who plays Mary, is not my favorite Mary, to be honest with you. If you've seen the movie, she, she pouts a lot. She's brooding. She's kind of melancholy. And, and I just don't envision that as being Mary, so I use this slide because this is one of the few times she's smiling in the whole movie. <laughs> But the next picture shows she and Joseph together. Imagine them pledged to be married in all the hopes and dreams of a great future together, right? Now, being pledged as a young Jewish couple meant that they were engaged, and the period would last about a year. They would not come together physically yet in the marriage, but they would be called husband and wife. If the husband died, the woman would be called a widow. In fact, there is in Jewish literature the very unusual phrase of a virgin widow, some gal who lost her husband during this period before they ever came together, a virgin widow. And the only way to break up this engagement was divorce, public divorce. We talked about that from Matthew chapter 1 last week. So here they were together. They couldn't wait for this period of a year to rush by. They longed to be together as husband and wife and look forward to their future. That's the setting. Bedtown, great couple, hopes of a wonderful future. And God says to Gabriel, go there and change their world. And now we come to the story. I'm going to divide it into three acts or movements, as it were. The first is the visitation of the angel and Mary's response. The visitation and the response. Verse 28, the angel went to Mary and said, Greetings, you are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Now that was an amazing greeting. Uh, the, the greeting literally comes from the Greek word that speaks of grace. May it be well with you. May you rejoice. God has favored you, highly favored you, and God is with you. Every bit of that greeting is positive. In the Latin, the first few words, you know, are Ave Maria, and that's where the song comes from. But it's simply a greeting to Mary. Mary is the recipient of grace. The passive tense is used. Mary does nothing to earn grace. She is being graced. She is being greatly graced and highly favored by a gracious God. In fact, if you study Mary throughout the Scripture, you'll find out that she was a woman who was greatly graced, but she's never a dispenser of grace. She's never the one who doles out grace to others. The Bible says nothing about coming to Mary and bringing your requests to her. The Bible says nothing about worshiping her. In fact, later on in her song, she's going to acknowledge she needs a Savior too. She's a great woman, but she's a human woman. You know, we have a tendency to go to extremes, don't we? 
either to magnify or vilify Mary. I mean, the, the Catholics have a tendency to magnify her beyond what the Scripture says, whether it's praying or worshiping. Protestants, we have a tendency to, to really put her down, almost to vilify. But you read the text, and you have to come up with something in between. Notice, she is highly favored. That's what the angel said. If you go down to uh, verse 42, when she meets Elizabeth, Elizabeth will say, Blessed are you among women, uh, uh, among all women. You are the most blessed of women. You're the mother of the Lord, verse 43. Verse 45, you are blessed because you believe. And when Mary sings her song, she acknowledges in verse 48, I will be blessed for generations to come. And that's why it's biblical to call her the blessed Virgin Mary, the mother of our Lord, because that's what the Scripture calls her. She is highly favored and greatly blessed. And the Bible tells us this appearance of the angel to her with this unusual greeting is something that disturbed her a little bit. Notice her response, verse 29. Mary was greatly troubled. Or verse 30, the angel had to say to her, don't be afraid. There's a mixture of fear and there's a mixture of confusion or of awe. And you can imagine that kind of response. We don't know what Gabriel looked like. We don't know where he visited her. Could have been on top of the house because that's where many people would go to kind of get away from the world, especially at night, and you could see the stars from the rooftop patio. Or maybe off out into the desert a little bit to find some oasis where you could get a little bit of private time. We don't know, but apparently no one else knew about this visitation. Mary was troubled by the appearance and troubled by the greeting. She wondered, what kind of greeting can this be? You have to remember that most Jews felt that if an angel appeared to them, it was usually bad news. It usually meant judgment. It was usually the angel of death. You didn't want to see an angel. And this angel had nothing but blessing. So Mary responds, as you and I often do, to the different providential situations we face. God does something in our life, and we're not exactly sure how to understand it. What does this mean? Have you ever been there? The difficulties of, of life cause us to question what God is trying to accomplish. And we, with Mary, can be troubled and fearful. That's why this text is so great. It tells us how to respond. Secondly, there is revelation and response. So the angel appears, but now, after the greeting, the angel has a message, and here it is in verse 30. The angel said to her, Don't be afraid, Mary. You found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. The very same instruction given to Joseph a little bit later on. We already studied that in Matthew chapter 1. Verse 32, he will be great. He'll be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will never end. Behind the angelic vision, when the angel spoke to Joseph, 
was the prophecy of Isaiah 7. Behind this visit of Gabriel and the revelation he gives to Mary about this child that is going to be born to her are the prophets Isaiah and Samuel. This sounds very much like 2 Samuel chapter 7. One is going to reign on the throne of David, and he will be great, and his kingdom will be forever. Or Isaiah's prophecy, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. And, and I'm guessing that Mary was well taught in a righteous and devout home where some of these messianic prophecies would have been echoing in their hearts and minds, and Mary might have been like many other maidens in that land, praying that they could be the mother of the Messiah, and it all comes together. <laughs> the prophecy, the angels visit, Mary, this is you. By the way, when you just highlight the names of Christ here, isn't it amazing? He is a human son, verse 31, but he is a divine son, verse 32, and also verse 35. He's the son of Mary. He's the son of the Most High. He's the son of God. He is both human and divine in one person. We talked about that last week, the miracle of the God-man. But here it is again. Theologians like to talk about the hooperstatic union of Jesus Christ, which simply means these two natures of Christ coming together and forming static, as it were, forming a contradiction. In fact, it is a superlative, who pair is hyper kind of conflict. Man and God in one person, 100% man and 100% God. You cannot understand that, but you must believe that because it's the truth of Scripture. And by the way, that's at the heart of every miracle. Next to impossible to understand, but it, by faith, God is a miracle-working God. And so this one is going to be your son. He's going to be God's son, and he's going to be Messiah, the sovereign, who will reign over Jacob and reign over God's kingdom forever. What was Mary's response? Well, look at verse 34. How will this be since I am a virgin? Now, that is a response not lacking faith, but of curiosity. If you go back to the story of Zechariah, remember when Gabriel said to him that he and his wife would have a child? He said, how can this be? This is a different question. It's not questioning the promise of God. It's questioning the process. Okay, God, I hear your promise. I'm a little confused. How are you going to make this happen? since I'm a virgin. By the way, there's nothing wrong with bringing to God our honest questions as long as they come short of doubt. What the Scripture repeats over and over again is that God knows what he's doing. He's wise and powerful and gracious. He's merciful and loving and true. He can be trusted. His word is right. 
But when he comes to us and the providence of God sometimes seems unfavorable, and when the word of God seems confusing, there's nothing wrong like Habakkuk was saying, why, God, I see what's happening in the world, and I know that you're holy, and I can't put the two together. That drives us to prayer. Not the prayer of unbelief, but the prayer of, Lord, how will this be? I believe you're going to do it. I just don't know how you're going to do it. What a wonderful question of faith. Which leads us to the last little section in this story, explanation and response. So in every situation, the angel appears, and then the angel has a message for Mary, and then the angel clarifies the message. In each time, Mary responds, first of all, with fear, with trouble, then with question and curiosity. And now Mary responds with faith. And I think this is one of the greatest examples of faith in all the Bible. Verse 35, the angel clarified. The Holy Spirit's going to come upon you, Mary, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One born to you is going to be called the Son of God. Yeah, he's your son, but he's the Son of God. This conception is going to be miraculous. Now, by the way, all births are miraculous, aren't they? You think about it. Every birth is a miracle. On December 2nd, my fifth grandson was born, William. And I tried to get a picture in here and messed it up somehow so you don't get to see it. He was actually in creative, and I was going to have him stand up, actually have his mother stand up and hold him, but he went out because he had to eat. Didn't even stay long enough to be a sermon illustration. <laughs> but I was standing outside the door, listening to the cries of the labor and de delivery hall, and a couple times I heard a cry, and I'd open the door just to crack and say, is that him? I knew it was a boy. Is that him? No, nope, not yet. And uh, I was excited, and my daughter, of course, is going through labor. You know what that's all about. And then a cry came so, so strong, and I opened the door. Is that him? Yep, that's him. And I went into that room and saw that little child after he was cleaned up a little bit, and I thought, what a miracle of God's grace. This cannot be the product of time and chance. <laughs> this cannot be the product of some process minus an intelligent being with awesome power. The Bible over and over again says we are created by him. Every birth is a miracle. But this is an amazing, outstanding birth. And so the Lord says not only is this going to be miraculous, verse 36 your cousin Elizabeth, your relative, she's going to have a child in her old age, and that's going to be a miracle. So you've got a normal miracle of any birth, and then you've got an, an exceptional miracle of a woman who's mature. I call her mature, not old. Her husband was old. She was mature. And having a birth of a child, and then the birth of a virgin's on the top of it all. There's nothing like that. Elizabeth is going to have a child. She's in her sixth month. That explains verse 26. And then you have this axiom. When you speak axiomatically, you're making a statement. You're declaring a proposition that is self-evident. It's a pithy statement. It becomes like a proverb. And here it is. 
For nothing is impossible with God. Say that with me. Nothing is impossible with God. Do you believe that? I kind of (laughs) do. I know I'm supposed to until it's my problem. But the Lord is saying, look at the birth here, the birth of John the Baptist. That's a miracle. And yours is going to be even greater. She's giving birth to the forerunner of the Messiah. You're giving birth to the Messiah. And I want to give you this axiomatic statement, Mary, so that you might use this in every area of life. I just want you to know that whatever God wants to do, he can do, and nothing is impossible with God. Now, someone will say, you know, in that stupid, moronic philosophy, can God build a wall so high that he can't get over it? Have you ever heard someone say something dumb like that? As though God would try to do something like that. What you have to understand is that, yes, none of us have said there are some things God cannot do. God cannot sin. God cannot be untrue to himself. He cannot be less than holy, less than righteous, less than loving, less than merciful. There's some things God cannot do. But anything God wills to do, anything God wants to do, he can do. Our God is in the heavens, and he does whatever he pleases. Psalm 115. So, Mary, I just want you to know that you can put any trial that you're facing in life up to this great axiom. God can do all that he wants to do. Nothing's impossible with him. Now, you may be facing something this week that seems like an impossibility, right? A financial difficulty? Some of you are battling with physical ailments that you can't seem to get on top of. Or maybe this Christmas is going to be a sad one because there's a breakdown in a relationship in your family and you don't think it's ever going to be reconciled. Or maybe you're battling with emotional problems and again, you can't get a handle on them and you're thinking, what am I going to do? Here is God's response. Nothing is impossible with God. If he can do a miracle like the virgin birth, he's arguing from the greater to the lesser. If he can do something like the virgin birth, don't you think he can handle your problem? Romans chapter 8, God who spared not his own son but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us everything we need? Argument from the greater to the lesser. And notice Mary's response. Wow, this is good. Verse 38, Mary said, I'm the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. And that, my friend, is one of the greatest statements of faith in all the Scripture. Faith is the confidence that what we hope for will actually happen. It gives us assurance about things we cannot see, says one paraphrase of Hebrews 11.1. Faith perceives as real fact what is not revealed to our senses. Faith embraces the promises when it does not understand all of the process. Yeah, the the power of the highest is going to overshadow you, and, and what is born of you will be of the Holy Spirit. That's as far as I'm going to go with biology and genetics. You've just got to believe my promise. And Mary says, I will. I'm your servant. Like the lowest slave, I will do your bidding. 
And Lord, just as you said, may it happen to me. That's where you and I need to get in our lives of Christian growth and maturity, where we say, not my will, but thine be done. Where we say, I've died to self. I was crucified with Christ on the cross, and I don't live anymore, but Christ lives in me. Right? I surrender everything I have to everything you are because I believe your word. That's faith. Think about it. Mary put everything at risk in that one response, may it be to me as you have said. The penalty for adultery, stoning, at least in the Old Testament. And the law of Moses was still prevailing, although it was not always practiced. For sure she would lose Joseph, probably lose her family, lose her reputation in town, and maybe lose her life. And she said, Lord, may it happen to me as you have said. That's faith. That is faith. And that's where you and I need to be. The Bible tells us that at some point Mary's parents did hear about it. Can you imagine how Joseph's or Mary's parents would have talked about that situation? As we talk about our children when they're in difficulty, how they must have been brokenhearted that their daughter of virtue would commit such an atrocity. I'm sure there were many nights when Mary talked with her mother and maybe Mary's mother finally said, Honey, let's just stop talking about how it happened. Let's deal with the problem. <laughs> I can't take this, you know, God is giving me a son bit. But a loving mother somehow is there when her daughter needs her. And what about the gossip in town? She'd go out to that well that you can still see today, Mary's well, and as she would walk, people would point the finger and say, there's that girl we all thought was true and virtuous. And now she's pregnant. Or when she had to tell Joseph, Joseph, I'm going to go down and visit my cousin Elizabeth 80 miles down into the Judean hill country. And he said, why are you doing that, Mary? That's a dangerous trip. Why go by yourself? Why go so quickly? Because that's what the Scripture says. After the angel left her in verse 38, verse 39, Mary got ready, and she hurried to the town in the hill country of Judea. She quickly got down there to be with Elizabeth, who has experienced a miracle like her. And verse 40 says, she entered Zechariah's home, greeted Elizabeth, and when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and with a loud voice, Elizabeth said, Blessed are you among women. I'm so favored to have the mother of our Lord come and visit me. Blessing upon her. Look at verse 45. Blessing on the one who believed what the Lord said to her will be accomplished. Because Mary with her body, verse 46 with her soul, verse 47 with her spirit, soul body and spirit. Mary said, Lord, whatever you want is good for me. One of the greatest miracles in this whole text is that a human being believed God for the impossible. And I want you just again to see verse 37. Here it is. Nothing is impossible 
with God. The American Standard Version of 1901 has a very interesting translation of this verse. It says, for no word of God shall be devoid of power. And if you have a newer NIV, it takes this translation for verse 37. No promise of God will be robbed of the power to make it happen. Every word of God goes forth with divine power to see it through. None of these words will fall flat to the ground. Every promise of God will be fulfilled. And the Christmas story proves that nothing is impossible with God. Let's pray. Lord, as we face those challenges in our own life and we have the tendency to be afraid or to question, let us, in the midst of all of our trials, learn to trust you, for you can be trusted. Your word is never devoid of power, and anything you want to accomplish, you can do. May the miracle that took place in Mary's life and the miracle that took place in the life of Elizabeth simply underscore the fact that you are doing miracles all the time when human beings commit their body and their spirit and their soul to you and trust you even though it doesn't make human sense. Thank you for your word today, Lord. Perform miracles in our midst, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.